I'd like to invite you to, to open up your Bibles or open up your worship guides. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few verses from the book of Proverbs uh, here in a few mo- in just a moment. Uh, but just uh, to add two more announcements, uh, we had two wonderful announcements that were shared. I just want to remind you of two other ones. They're old announcements, but number one is we do have our time period for elder nominations um, for members. If they're a few weeks ago, and this has been resent, but there is a, a document that's been sent out, but our elder nomination window closes next Sunday. So if you would like to nominate uh, a member to... to be, to be considered for, to be an elder, uh, please email me that by, and including next Sunday, and including next Sunday. And then also next Sunday night, we have a prayer meeting. Um, so come out and join us for time of prayer, um, to hear from myself, to hear from our elders as we uh, pray for and the work of the church. With all that said, um, now we want to turn our attention to Proverbs and um, something that Mike Fugate reminded me of what something I read this week. Caring for one another is not entirely separable from caring for words. Words are entrusted to us as equipment for our life together to help us survive, guide, and nourish each other. And so today, this is what we're picking up. We're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Proverbs. And the, the book of Proverbs, the entire message is about the good life is about the good life. If you want to have a good life, if you, then you need to understand the power of words. As we heard in the call to confession, words can kill, words can give life. Gossip and lying, which we considered last week, they can destroy, they can tear down, but there are words that can build us up, they can encourage us. And the, these types of words of building one another up, that's the focus for us this morning. And so we're going to be looking at a few verses here, and we're jumping around um, in Proverbs. Let's first look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7. Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 9. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And then jumping to Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4. And five. 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us. And we pray that now your spirit would be planting your word deep within our hearts to help us walk with you, to help us love you, and to love one another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So let's take this idea that words can build up. 
Can you think of a time in your life when someone has spoken to you and they have spoken over you and you have left encouraged? So in other words, can you think of a time that someone said encouraging words to you? It could be that time when you ask a mentor, a friend for advice. And at the end of their time of advice, they say, I trust you. You got this. So upon hearing that, you feel, leave that conversation actually feeling empowered that you will make the right decision. A friend once told me that I don't care how much you know or who you know, I just love you. Can we just talk about how that was an amazing rebuke right there? But so as we look at these Proverbs, there are two types of words that involve building one another up. There's the idea of advice, this idea of counsel, and there is also this idea of correction. So the entire idea that we're going to be looking at this morning is about giving and receiving counsel. Giving and receiving counsel. And this is important for us if we're going to grow in godliness, if we're going to have a wonderful life where we are flourishing with God. But as we think about counsel, the reality is counsel is hard for us because counsel threatens, especially when we are receiving counsel, because that threatens our little kingdom. That threatens our own agenda. We don't like it. And so the response that we have to receiving counsel, in the words of Drew Holcomb, I'm not going to sing it, but is I can be so defensive. That in the, and when we receive counsel, we can be defensive. And so for, so for us this morning, we're going to be thinking about giving counsel and receiving counsel. Giving counsel and receiving counsel. So first, let's think about giving counsel. What are these words of life? Because as you look at the entirety of Proverbs, and last week I said this, that there are over 90 Proverbs that deal with our words. So there is a lot of Proverbs that deal with our own speech. And the reality is what you learn and discover is working through those 90 verses that God delights in honest words, not lies. He delights in words of peace that de-escalate as opposed to escalate tension. That he delights in words that are spoken calmly that do not provoke anger. He delights in words that are well chosen. And when you are able to bite your tongue and hold your emotions in check. And so God delights in these words and he delights in the words that build up. And so not one of the Proverbs say that the lips of the wise broadcast knowledge, but not so the hearts of fools. And so the reality is we're thinking about just giving counsel to start with. Anyone can find fault. Anyone can find criticism. But wise words build up and wisdom seeks it out. So, for example, verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And so this is just the idea that wisdom seeks out counsel. So continuing with this idea of counsel, like counsel can be translated for us in the Proverbs as instruction or advice. Instruct the wise and he will be wiser. Is there chapter? 
Proverbs 9, verse 9. Whoever listens to such counsel is wise. Proverbs 15, verse 12. See, God loves good advice. He loves good counsel. And when you ask someone for advice, you're going to them and asking them to help you figure out what to do and how to do it. And this is something that we naturally understand and, in fact, embrace. Should you look for a new job? Should you go to grad school? Should you buy a house? Should you rent? Should you propose? Should you go on a date? Like, we think about these questions, and we often ask for advice. We ask for advice from loved ones, people who know us well. We ask for advice from parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, neighbors, our church members. We ask for advice from people who know us, they know our hearts, but they also know the situation that we are in. And so this past week, I was talking with Alec, who leads our Goshen community group, and we were actually commiserating and sharing that a common prayer request that we are finding in our groups is one of discernment, that I'm trying to figure out what to do, and I need help because I don't know what to do. This is something that is very common to us as human beings. Because the reason why it's come to us is because we are creatures, that we are finite. We do not know everything. None of us knows everything. In fact, none of us, and we've said this over the past several weeks, none of us are naturally wise. In fact, all of us are naturally fools. Wisdom comes from outside of us. In fact, wisdom comes down to us. That's God, Jesus, who became word and the flesh, that wisdom comes to us. And so when you're going about making a decision, you're looking for discernment. You're recognizing that I do not know everything. You are recognizing that you need help, that you need wisdom, and it needs to come to you because you do not naturally have it. And this is actually very wise to admit that you do not know everything. None of us do. And many times, in fact, we do not know what we don't know. And so counsel comes to us from a friend. Advice comes from a loved one. A a mentor gives instruction. This is the stuff of counsel here where we can look for advice. But there's another form here that in these Proverbs that when we think about giving counsel And we see it here. It's called reprove. You see it there in verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. This idea of reproof. To reprove means to correct moral behavior. Where you are helping someone to see that what they are thinking with their attitude or what they are doing with their actions is wrong and it needs to be corrected. It needs to be changed. And so this is the idea of a, rebu- of a rebuke. And in fact, what we find here is that a rebuke is a word that actually builds us up. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. But let me pause here for a moment because I know I can easily be misunderstood. Because there is a difference between being scolded and rebuked. There's a difference between being scolded and rebuked. 
Have you ever met a person who has fallen in love of Jesus because a religious group or a religious person has scolded their morals, their ethics, their behavior? I haven't. But in fact, I can show you many others who have fallen in love with Jesus because of the gentleness of Christ that has been displayed to them and and how they have been treated by other Christians. See, when you are scolding someone, you're not thinking about their heart. When you're scolding someone, you're not thinking about their heart. But when you rebuke someone in line with Proverbs, you're actually thinking about their heart. That this is discipline. This is correction. And so Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, he writes this, that part of our problem with our cultural and Christian understanding of rebuke is that we don't do it enough. We don't rebuke one another in our discipleship. We do not rebuke one another in our relationships. So when, in this mindset, rebuking becomes correction. Excuse me, rebuking becomes confrontation. But it can be avoided if rebuke has become a normal way we disciple one another. And I love Chester's honesty, and I see this in my own life. That I need people in my life who regularly ask about my own walk with the Lord, readily challenge my behavior and know my temptations. A good question to ask anyone is, what is the question you don't want me to ask you? Just imagine the power of that question when it's asked in love. That's from Tim Chester's book, You Can Change. Because, friends, we do not like to admit we need correction. We like to admit we need counsel, we need advice, but we don't like to admit that we need correction. We need advice along with correction, along with words of rebuke, because we are sinners, because we are experts. If we're experts at anything, this is what we're experts at. We are experts at being blind to our own sinfulness. The heart is deceitful above all things. We are experts at being blind to our own needs, and these are blind spots. So several months ago, I was talking with Mike Fugay, whom you heard about earlier, and he he and I were talking about blind spots, and he was sharing with me that there are different types of knowledge. There's the knowledge that I myself know, there's knowledge that others know about me, and there's knowledge that God knows about us. And when there are things that only I know about myself, those things are secrets, then there's when there, there are things that I and other people know about myself, that's agreed upon knowledge. But there's the knowledge that people may have about me or about you that we don't know about ourselves. And that's the area of blind spots. And see, that is actually the moment where we need this type of correction. Because we are blind to our own neediness. We're blind to our own sins. That in fact, other people may see them in us, but we need this Open rebuke from a friend. So here's this whole idea about giving counsel. Excuse me, about this whole idea about giving counsel and also giving rebuke. We've understand what it is. But how do you go about this? How do you go about giving giving correction specifically? And before we get into this idea about giving correction, I... I want to highlight that I'm specifically thinking about how do we as followers of Jesus, of Jesus' disciples, correct one another. 
That's what I'm thinking about. Or about a parent to a child. This is not how I would go about addressing non-Christian friends. For the simple reason that they are not followers of Jesus Christ. And so I cannot expect them or hold them to Jesus' teaching. But so this is specific, what follows is specifically for us as the church. And many writers can help you in this. Ed Welch, Side by Side, Paul David Tripp, um, Instruments in Redeemer's Hands, Tim Chester's book, You Can Change. But this is really, uh, all these points here are where they actually agree on. So how can you give good correction to one another? Well, first and foremost, it's humility. And this is a must. Because before you can correct someone else, you need to check your own heart and recognize your own sinfulness. And Jesus talks about this with incredible clarity. Why are you talking about someone else's sin like a speck in their own eye when you are walking around with a log in your own eye? That you have the power, you have the ability, the agency to deal with your own sin instead of fixating on other people's brokenness and sinfulness. See, humility is the starting point, and this is where we all must begin. And secondly, it's love, of loving the other person, where you celebrate the good in them. How do you see God's work in their life, where you see God at work in them and through them? So love them well by celebrating that. Love them well by enjoying them. Like another way to say this is by encouraging them with your words. And Ed Welch says in his book, if you have not done this, then don't move on. (laughs) Do this first and foremost. Because we need to show one another that we love one another, that we care for one another, that we are rooting for one another, and that we're in each other's corner for them by giving them time and truly treasuring them. That's the second thing. The third thing is acknowledging the hard circumstances and the difficult situation, the pain that that surrounds them. And this is the idea of sympathy, of empathy. If you're addressing a person's anger, you're able to ask, hey, is everything okay? I've never seen you act like that before. I'm worried about you. Fourthly, this is focusing on one thing. Focus on one thing. Proverbs, Proverbs talks about this, 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians, but love covers a multitude of sins. And so Highlight one thing, but as you do this, remind them of their identity of Christ. What we just sang earlier. Who do you say I am? That I am chosen, I am forgiven, I am a child of God, I have been set free by Christ. That is my identity. And when we are correcting one another, are we just focused on on each other's behavior? Or are we focused on the heart? Are we focused on the heart? Because if we're focused on the heart, we're going to remind them of how we are God's beloved. We're going to remind one another how we are forgiven by Christ. We're going to remind one another that God has given us his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And one of the wonderful things that the Holy Spirit does is not only does he convict us of our sinfulness and encourage us and help us remember everything that Christ has taught us, but he also empowers us to put off the old self and put on the new. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to repentance, and the Holy Spirit is given to us. And so that we are able to talk to one another with hope and not doubt. We're able to hold on to the fact that God is working in us, and that is true. In fact, in other words, that we are 
growing and we are changing and becoming more and more godly. So with all these things, pray. Pray. Search your own heart and discern if this is the Holy Spirit putting something in you, putting before you, or if it's really your preferences that were bothered. And so pray over your words. Think through what is calm, what will help what will help a person receive what you're saying? So Proverbs 21, verse 23, the one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And so with this idea of prayer, prayerfully ask about the situation that you're hoping to address. Ask yourself, is it true? What you are about to say, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it respectful? Do you have the right to say it? And remember that you yourself are a sinner who desperately, desperately depends upon the grace of God. How have you struggled with the same thing? How, if you don't, how could you? So even just think about words of giving and receiving these types of words, it's easy to be defensive. I'll get to defensiveness in a moment. But this whole idea of giving and receiving correction, we are speaking the truth in love. But according to Paul, when you look at that, speak the truth in love, the whole purpose of that is so that we would grow in godliness, that we would grow in Christ. That's Ephesians 4.15. This is about giving. That, there's the giving the counsel. But still let's come back to this receiving counsel. Because the roadblock... To receiving this type of counsel uh, and receiving correction is defensiveness. Is defensiveness. So why do we get defensive? Why do we get defensive? Well, first off, we can be defensive simply out of like a survival mechanism. That counselors talk about fight, flight, or freeze as being responses to conflict. Because being defensive is actually fighting. If you look into your story... And see how no one has fought for you, how no one has stood up for you. It would makes perfect sense how you yourself need to step up and fight for yourself. And sometimes being defensive protects an old wound because hurt goes deep. But hurt, one counselor says that hurt is actually one of the greatest sources of shame because it reveals that someone has gotten to you. So recognize that defensiveness is part of hurt and wounds. It could be a way that you actually just have tried to protect yourself. That's number one. But secondly, another reason why we can be defensive is either the person doesn't know us or know the situation. There's always more that's going on. So Scott Sauls, he wrote in his book, A Gentle Answer, about his own defensiveness. The self-protective fight or flight instinct feels so naturally to me that it's almost like breathing. When I feel like I'm being criticized or attacked, even by remote strangers, my first impulse can be to go on the defensive. How dare they criticize me? Who do they think they are? Do they even know me? So there we can be dismissive and defensive. They have no idea what happens. That's the second thing. But the third thing, we can be defensive because it is a matter of the heart, that we get defensive about the littlest things. Paul Miller in his book, J-Curve, he shared a story of an instance when he was defensive. One night, um, his, uh, his son at the time would wake up in the middle of the night and would ask for a cup of water. 
So Paul, um, one night he would get a, dis- a Dixie cup full of water and give it to his son. And to help save his time one night, so he's not getting up two or three or four times. Parents, you can understand this. He would get two Dixie cups and fill them up with water. And he would leave them there on the dresser. But to his wife's frustration, if you leave a cup on the dresser that's full of water overnight, what would happen to that dresser? It would leave a little ring there. And so she would gently, uh, she pointed this out. It's like, hey, there's a ring on the dresser. Please don't leave the Dixie cup there. And he's like, okay, sure, no problem. A few days later, it happened again. And Paul, in his, in his book, he's sharing, I don't remember putting it there. I, 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 don't, I don't remember it. But so when she brought it up, he bristled. He was agitated. He's like, I, I don't think that was me. But at that moment, um, he was about to declare his, he was about to correct his wife. He was like, hey, I'm not a failure as a husband, but then I remembered the gospel. Because the gospel says that the righteousness from God depends upon faith. Why in the world am I in a rush to defend myself? Why am I in a rush? That rush is what I'm pointing out. Because when people come to us and and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something, why are we in a rush to defend ourselves? Because it's a matter of the heart. And I love what Paul says. Again, J. Curve, it's an amazing book. He says, who left the Dixie cup? Well, it's most likely likely me, but in reality, who cares? Who cares? This is what faith in Jesus Christ do, because I'm able to rest in him. My silence is a form of love, because love comes from faith. I know that when I get defensive, it reveals how little I am resting in Christ. When I get defensive, it shows me how little I'm trusting in the gospel, because the gospel tells me that all my guilt, all my wrongness has been taken care of by Jesus Christ upon the cross, and the adopting smile of God smiles over me. And I have God's favor. That should liberate me and free me. As we heard in our words of assurance, for freedom, Christ has set you free. That should free us because we are loved. And that love is eternal and secure and it will never be lost. And so when I get defensive, that is what I'm forgetting. So hold on to this wonderful gospel. And I want to highlight this. And we'll end by ha- the, on the gospel here. And there's a story. It's in John 1. Philip, uh, is, he comes and tell, tells his friend Nathaniel, Hey, Nathaniel, uh, we have found him. We have found the one. We have found the Messiah. And Philip is there. He's actually full of curiosity. Really? Where? Who, who is he? Where is he from? He's asking these questions. And Philip responds, well, his name's Jesus. And he's from Nazareth. And that's when Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's answering with disdain. He's answering with a certain scorn and a mockery. But Philip, I don't know how he did it, but Philip got him to come and see. Come. Come and visit him. And come with me. And so Nathaniel does, and as he's approaching, there's Jesus. And Jesus sees Nathaniel approaching, and Jesus responds, hey, there is a true son of Israel in whom there is no deceit. And Philip responds to something. He responds using words I just said. How do you know me? Who are you? Who do you think I am? Who do you think you are? How in the world do you know me? 
And Jesus responds with a certain word by saying, I saw you under the fig tree. And that's all he says. That's all he says. Now, when artists capture this image, they have uh, Philip coming to Nathaniel, and he's there under the fig tree. And so it's very easy to have that type of artistic rendering in your mind. But that detail, but that detail is added at this point where we don't know if that was the fig tree moment that Philip, if he was just sitting under the fig tree when Philip came to Nathaniel. We don't know that. But actually, in, Phil, in Nathaniel's life, that tree moment was very significant. As, as soon as Jesus mentions this, all of Nathaniel's defensiveness goes away. Because with that one phrase, we see that Jesus knows the full depths of Nathaniel's heart. He turns to Jesus, and, and whatever disdain that he had, whatever scorn he had, is completely gone, is completely melted away. He says, Rabbi. He uses a term of respect, but he goes on to say that you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So we actually have no idea what Nathaniel did under that fig tree. Perhaps, but it was very personal and changed the, the entire course of his life. But right here, what we see is that we have a savior who knows us. He knows the, uh, the best of us. He knows the worst of us. He knows us thoroughly. That even as we're here this morning and we can be blind, that we are blind to things in our life, there is one person who's not blind to the entire depths of our soul, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our gentle Savior, and he speaks these words of love over us. He says that we are his beloved, that we are his friends, that we are his brothers, and we are his sisters. We have a Savior who sees the best and worst in us, and he loves us all the same. So next time you find yourself being defensive, run to Jesus. Look to him and rest upon him because he loves you more than anyone else. He knows you far better than anyone else. And he gives you these words of love and life to build you up so that you would have this wonderful life with God and to grow in godliness. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us that your word is given to us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You give us the, your word for all these things. And so, Father, we pray that your word would be planted deep within our hearts and our life, that you would help us to grow in wisdom, that you would help us to look for advice, to receive counsel, that we would embrace rebukes, that you would help us to disciple one another and care for one another. But Father, we pray that in all these things, that our hearts would be drawn to you, that we would know your love, that we would know your gentleness and your care, your pursuit of us, because you are our Heavenly Father who loves us amidst our sin and cares for us. So Father, we pray for thee all these things and so much more. In Christ's name I pray, amen.